The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football. I'm Johnny McFarlane and today I'm joined by pod regulars Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. This week, Juve boss Max Allegri may have itchy feet in Italy, is he destined for England or even Real Madrid as club legend Zinedine Zidane feels the heat? Thomas Tuchel is in line for a shock move to Paris as the Emir of Qatar makes him number one PSG boss target. Bolstered by a huge revenue increase, Spurs look to tie up their talent on long-term deals. But how many will take up Daniel Levy on his offer? And we preview City v United and ask, will Pep play a weakened team against their greatest rivals? So straight away, Ian, you have some news on Max Allegri, the coach of Juventus. Is he destined for a move to England or even Real Madrid? Yeah, Max Allegri is um, obviously one of uh, Europe's top coaches, Johnny, and and has been um, certainly uh, the target of of clubs over the last four or five seasons. Not just due to Juventus' dominance in Serie A, which people will dismiss as the lack of um, of legitimate rivals, but clearly they've performed well in the Champions League. Um, I think uh, two finals and certainly four semi-finals and again this week playing Real Madrid in the quarter-final uh, anyone who saw the way that he tactically changed his setup and his team at uh, Wembley uh, and scored his team scored two goals in three minutes to uh, put Tottenham out of the Champions League um, got a little glimpse of just you know his, his tactical nose his ability to see how a game needs to be changed and then to action that now He's given an interview to the Daily Telegraph in which he said that um, when he leaves Juventus, which he doesn't specify when that will be, um, he will take a job outside of Italy. He doesn't want to manage a team in Italy. Uh, this has led, obviously, to a sort of uh, railroad uh, type of speculation that uh, clearly Chelsea are changing their Italian manager and will want a new manager. Therefore, Allegri is the obvious choice. Now, Duncan will tell us about what happened the last time Allegri spoke to Chelsea um, in a minute or two, but I just wanted to add in that um, my information is that uh, the people at the top at Real Madrid are very concerned that Zinedine Zidane is burning out. Uh, they think Zidane himself as well is uh, concerned that his uh, physical and emotional energy has been drained by a very stressful season. And... Um, and they think he may want to step down as head coach at the end of this season. Uh, and in doing so, leave obviously the biggest job in world football, arguably, um, there to be taken. Now, clearly, with the managers we have already um, in, in wait, Ancelotti's been there, done that. They, they won't want him back. Luis Enrique, 
I don't think for some reason he he will go there, and uh, and so Max Allegri to me is a perfect fit in terms of his um, <clears throat> his record, his his diplomacy, his uh, his ability, and I think that um, if Allegri leaves Juventus, it will be for an elite club. Um, people will say Premier League straight away because that's where the money is, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But um, despite the fact he did have conversations with Arsenal. Before Wenger signed his new contract last summer, um, I think there's a feeling that Wenger is going to stubbornly try and see at that last year of his contract. So I'm not sure that that's going to be an option for Allegri anyway. So um, I'll leave it to Duncan to inform us with regards to what Allegri's chances of getting the Chelsea job, despite the fact, as I said, much speculation in the English press today that Chelsea will be his destination. Yeah, look, with Allegri has kind of been in a very similar position every summer for, I think, the last, well, this would be the third one in a row in which his future at Juventus has been unclear. Um, He has been actively canvassing opportunities at other clubs. Um, He is, again, he feels that he's probably taken Juventus as far as he can. Um, in that interview, you mentioned he's very explicit that he wants to win the Champions League with them, um, if possible, before he leaves. And that's been the great target. And he's got very close to that during his time at Juve. Um, and again, Juventus don't want to lose him. So they prefer to retain him as manager, which is understandable given how well he's done for him. Um, but Talking to people close to him, you always get the sense with Allegri, he's very careful about this decision. Um, He doesn't want to just move for the sake of moving. Um, He wants a top club to go to um, and a a good um, framework and basis to work in, Um, which, as you suggest, would make Chelsea a questionable move from his side because... We all know what happens to Chelsea managers. No one survives for long and they don't get the backing and stability that they request. Um, He was, as you say, strongly linked with Chelsea uh, two years ago, or almost two years ago now, um, before they appointed Antonio Conte. Um, That There were discussions and Legri was interested in the job at that point, but he never actually got offered the job by Chelsea. Um, And I think Chelsea were quite happy to let him run in the media as being their preferred candidate at the time while they spoke in in very um, quite well handled secrecy with Antonio Conte for a long period before making that appointment. Um, I think he would be a great appointment for any Premier League club who was able to get him. I, um, I interviewed Patrice Evra a couple of years ago when he was at Juventus and he was... Um, extremely complimentary about what he had learned um, as a footballer um, working under Allegri both from a tactical perspective um, and also from a preparatory perspective he's, he's, you know, he, he talked about how he spent the uh, best part of 10 years at, at Manchester United and played 400 games there and he felt like he'd only played 100 games fully fit. You moved to Juventus the um, Within a few months, he detected a, a major medical problem he'd had, like a stomach condition he had, and solved that and, and made um, an immense difference to his, 
his physical condition on the field, which he credited for kind of one of the best seasons of his career. But in terms of Allegri, he, he was joking and saying he'd, he'd, he'd go to the manager before a game and say, what's on the menu today? Um, the question being, you know, what tactics are we going to use to 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 beat the opposition? And um, said that Allegri had him playing in a far more intelligent fashion than he had ever done in the Premier League um, instead of being expected to beat players with individual skill, he was encouraged to have, you know, the, the team was set up to give him multiple passing options and he was encouraged to pick the best one of those options. Why why run through a closed door was Allegri's advice. Why why try and dribble past the player when you can pass through an open door? So I, I think um, Chelsea Arsenal should be looking there. Um, but the question is whether they can convince Allegri that's the right place to take his career after being at such a high-level club as um, as Juventus and doing so so successfully over the past few seasons. Ian, just to um, check your where you are on this at the moment, you've been long advocating Carlo Ancelotti mm. for this job. He's nine to one at the bookies, and I'm not going to lie to you, I've been I've been taking it quite seriously. So <laughs> should I be concerned right now? <clears throat> Uh, no, I wouldn't be Johnny. I, I, I think um, Carlo has is quite content uh, and calm about his future. <clears throat> I, I do believe he knows um, his next club, and I believe that to be Chelsea. Um, I think Luis Enrique, uh, who is the other mooted candidate for the Chelsea job, is someone who, um, like his predecessor at Barcelona, Pep Guardiola, um, does... Or like as as Duncan was describing, Max Allegri indeed, and that is someone who likes a stable framework, a stable um, platform from which he can build, uh, and not to feel constantly under the threat of being fired if he loses three games, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Because uh, like Guardiola, Enrique's reputation uh, and his CV are are completely are almost perfect um, after leaving Barcelona. So. Um, Joining the chaos that is Chelsea under Roman Abramovich and Marina Granovskaya is not going to be particularly um, appealing to him, especially as he won't have the say over signings. Um, <clears throat> he clearly has, at the very least, a demotivated squad that he would inherit, um, as we can see from the lacklustre uh, way they played against Tottenham last weekend, um, the way that they lost to Barcelona in the Champions League knockout stages, uh, the way that they've very meekly conceded their league title um, this season and have not coped well with the rigours of both European and domestic football, unlike the way they won the Premier League when they were having a week's rest in between uh, games. So um, I think Ancelotti is still uh, the, the, the preferred candidate. I don't think that <clears throat> a contract has been signed. That's not the case. Um, and I think with Chelsea, we have to uh, put in the caveat that given the chaos that happens there and the amount of people who are voicing their opinions on things, um, that there is dissent. Um, indeed, I believe that there's at least one very powerful voice in the Chelsea hierarchy who is canvassing Luis Enrique very, very hard, um, while Roman Abramovich does, at this moment in time, I believe, prefer Carlo Ancelotti's return to the club. So we've got six, seven games left, and then we've got the transfer window, uh, opening in, in May, at the end of May. Uh, I don't think we'll see Conte uh, still at Chelsea much beyond uh, five or six days of the end of the season. Um, 
And I think Chelsea know uh, that they have to get a new coach appointed as quickly as possible before the World Cup begins. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> excuse me, they can do some transfer business before the World Cup. And I believe that those targets have already been drawn up as well. Um, and so, yeah, I think your money is OK just now, Johnny. I, I wouldn't uh, obviously advocate uh, uh, the younger members of the audience uh, get involved in gambling, but I believe that you're a responsible man. So, <laughs> yes, let's hope you can pay for your holding. <laughs> I think look, with Carlo, the, the strength for Chelsea there is that he's prepared to put up with the crap at the club. He was prepared yeah. to come back um, uh, previously when uh, Jose Marie, when they were ready to sack Jose Mourinho. Um, and he's prepared to do it again because he wants to coach in, in the Premier League and he'd like to live in London. The only is living in London right now, Duncan. Yes, I will continue living in London when he when he takes up his, his yeah. new position. I, I think the major drawback for Chelsea in terms of Ancelotti is if he were to get a better offer from elsewhere. So, for example, Tottenham Hotspur opened up if Pochettino went to Real Madrid or Arsenal were prepared to offer him that job, then then Chelsea's candidacy becomes um, more questionable for Carlo because he can then take a decision which is the, which which is the better club to work for. What I do know is that people around um, Roman Abramovich are still looking uh, for alternative candidates um, in European football, which tells you that there is no contract signed and um, it's not nailed down yet. So it's still, a, as Chelsea usually are, it's still in a position of flux. The one thing um, I'd add into what Duncan said in terms of Ancelotti's suitability is <clears throat> Chelsea... Uh, historically veer from uh, the confrontational uh, manager um, back towards a, a more, um, let's just say, considered diplomatic uh, people person. Um, they thought they were getting that with Conte. They thought they were getting someone who wasn't going to cause trouble. And, and in fact, that's <clears throat> exactly what happened in his first season. He was, he was uh, the uh, model of um, responsibility in the media, as well as uh, being charming and and very kind of effusive, but never questioning the club or the hierarchy or the transfers or anything else. And everything went uh, bad last summer when um, he demanded respect for the job he'd done and won the league title. Uh, and, and respect, he meant he wanted to be able to choose the players that he felt would improve the squad. Uh, he didn't get that. In fact, it was massively short of that again. And Conte then has now changed into, not changed, but he's gone back to how he was in his final couple of years at Juventus, which was, uh, you know, a, just a, a little bit kind of, uh, let's say, sharp, uh, less well, willing to toe party lines, um, got into um, debates and in the media was run and that about some, how some players were playing or responded to the way he wanted to play, questioned players' mentality, etc. So all the things he's done this season at Chelsea. Um, and the fact that he's walked around and even after the Tottenham defeat this uh, last weekend, said uh, I don't know if I'll be manager next season at Chelsea and it's not my problem. Really? So, <laughs> so being at the job that pays you £10 million a year is not your problem. Well that's a nice position to be in, Antonio. And I'm sure you'll get another job. But, you know, even Gianluca Viali, who is quite close uh, to um, Conte, they regularly see each other in London um, and obviously played in that fantastic Juventus team um, of the 90s. 
he said publicly he can't wait to leave. I Conte can't wait to leave Chelsea. Now, if that's not you know a massive sort of road sign in the super highway of Chelsea sackings, then I don't know what is. Duncan, you have a story that the PSG job has been offered to a man by no less than the Emir of Qatar. Tell us more. Yes, this is um, kind of a, the the head of Qatar um, has intervened in in PSG's long search for replacement for Unai Emery and um, told uh, Chief Executive Nasser Al Khalifi and uh, the um, Director of Football Antenno Enrique that the man he wants as the next manager is Thomas Tuchel, um, which has caught a lot of people in the hierarchy and around PSG by surprise because um, the the line that the club had been pursuing all through the season um, in trying to get a replacement for Emery is that they wanted a experienced um, top European coach, preferably who had already won the Champions League. And they've gone for a 44-year-old who's only had two seasons at a proper Champions League club, Borussia Dortmund, um, and who's only won one trophy in his entire career, which was the um, the German Cup three days before he was sacked by uh, Dortmund in 2017. Um, Tuchel hasn't agreed to take the job yet, but uh, everyone around the club expects that to happen because he's such a surprise candidate. Um, obviously, the salary will be huge. Um, if his agent's got anything about him, he'll negotiate a very good um, uh, rescission clause for um, the likely sacking in a year's time when it, it doesn't work out. Um, and then we will see Thomas Tuchel put in charge of Neymar, um, Cavani and the, the entire PSG circus for next season, assuming, of course, that um, PSG retain Neymar for that second season. Um and give him the uh, the uh, the rise in salary he's been asking for as a sweetener to stay there. Um, and this, I mean, Tuchel was one of the candidates that Chelsea have been looking at. He was actually um, mentioned to me very early on um, when the um, issues emerged with Antonio Conte, and it looked uh, likely that Conte might leave during the season um, by. If, if Chelsea decided to sack him for the kind of behaviours that Ian has just been describing. Um, he was mentioned as uh, ha- having admirers within the Chelsea hierarchy and, and some talks have gone on there. I think uh, not that long ago he was uh, being reported as having been offered the Chelsea job. Um, but I don't see him going to Chelsea. I don't see him turning down PSG and, and we've got one other sort of question mark puzzles of, of how the European um, competition board will be set out next season solved now for us um, but whether you'll be able to solve PSG's problems is another matter entirely now, see, This to me Duncan it sounds like either they have offered this job to everyone that they wanted and they've all turned it down and we know there's been interest in Jose Mourinho. We know they've yeah. been interested in Luis Enrique. Um, or the Emir um, has decided completely <clears throat> from his own uh, sort of decision without making any great effort to uh, consult the people who he's put in charge of running the club that Tuchel is the man. But 
if the, if the latter's the case, it just sounds to me like another Unai Emery. It's, in fact, Unai Emery was better qualified than Thomas Tuchel in terms of experience yeah. and CV. And it's, yeah. a, it's, an, it's, another, it's another car crash. Uh, and, and, and that because people like Neymar, especially Neymar, are going to see Tuchel walk into the dressing room and just laugh. Who is this guy? You know, right, that's it. I'm picking the team now because this guy clearly not uh, capable of doing it. And it's just got disaster written all over it. And I, I thought that PSG was becoming better run. You know, obviously the way that they did manage to smuggle Neymar out of Barcelona was absolutely breathtaking. And, and I thought to myself then, right, they are now serious. They're, they're becoming a serious player now, not just because of the money they spend, but because of the way they operate. Now, if, if Tuchel becomes manager, then it just, I think, takes them back another five years rather than, you know, makes them look progressive. I, exactly. And, that, you know, it's very much how it's been described to me uh, was this is the Sheikh's choice. This is not um, Nasser's choice. This is not Antero Enrique's choice. And, and you're right, they had become a lot more professional. The key appointment there was Antero Enrique, the, um, the technical director who they took from FC Porto. Antero did all the groundwork to get Neymar to come to the club um, and has spent the entire season working on the right coach appointment. I, you know, as you mentioned, Jose Mourinho was offered that job. Um, Antero also had been working on um, contingency plan, which was Andre Villas-Boas, um, and talking to a number of other coaches. But the Tuchel was is not his appointment. It, it doesn't fit the the description of coach he was looking for, um, and it, it's this may be coincidence, but I was just. You know, the Sheikh hasn't been particularly um, involved in, in PSG since buying the club. Most of it's been de- delegated to Nasser, who's made some strange appointments. So they had Patrick Cliver as director of football at one point, which people just laughed at. Um, but the Emir of, of Qatar attended the PSG Madrid game um, when they got knocked out of the Champions League a few weeks ago. And perhaps it's coincidence or perhaps... Um, his dissatisfaction with that game resulted in him deciding, well, I'm going to take control of this um, appointment process. And he took control, and a few weeks later, two calls the man. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's redolent of the kind of stuff we've seen at, at, um, at Chelsea down the years, um, or Manchester City when, they just, when Abu Dhabi had just bought the club and certain advisors got around the ownership and, and um, uh, you saw them make some some very bad appointments and bad purchases. Uh, it's, it looks like that kind of um, deal where someone has come to a person who's not particularly involved in football and sold their client as the top candidate and the, the man who ultimately makes the decisions because he owns the country and owns the football club says, yeah, I'll have him and I, I don't care what the rest of you are saying about it. Okay, from one club, PSG, who can certainly be described as nouveau riche, to a club that perhaps surprisingly, given their latest results, can also be put into that same category, which is Tottenham. They have announced that they have an extra £100 on their turnover after the move to Wembley has secured extra money coming through the tills. And does that mean directly, guys, that players like Ali, Son, Eriksson and the manager, Pochettino, could be in line for new contracts. Well, Johnny, I think that's a, <clears throat> it, it's. I think it's coincidence um, with regards to the announcement. 
uh, of the the you know the hundred extra hundred million pounds in revenue. Although that is very substantial, that's not profit. Remember, that's that is turnover, as you said. Uh, but the move to the new stadium coming up, which will again guarantee bigger revenues uh, in all the years to come, etc. What Tottenham can't afford is not to, to move to that new stadium and not have a team that can compete on the pitch with which to sell those seats in the new White Hart Lane. Um, and my information is that in the last two to three weeks, um, that they have um, opened negotiations um, with the representatives of Delhi Alley, Christian Eriksen, um, Son, and Murcio Pochettino. And I, don't, I think this is quite a clever move from Daniel Levy, and he, we know he's a very shrewd operator. Um, I've seen this happen at clubs in the past where uh, there's a tightly knit group of players who, if you like, are the, uh, the nucleus um, of a talented side. And Harry Kane's already received three upgrades in the last 18 months, uh, has sworn his allegiance uh, to the club. And I think you know those other three players and the manager are key to keeping that, uh, that tight group together the manager being at the top of that pyramid. I don't believe that uh, that Mauricio Pochettino is in any hurry to leave Tottenham Hotspur. He's a young man who is planning his career very carefully. Uh, and yes, Real Madrid would love to have him, but I think he knows that he could he could go there and you know he would not be in charge of decisions and he could lose that job very quickly and therefore find himself uh, you know maybe slightly sidelined or marginalised in world football having gone there and failed. Because at the moment he's an he's an unsackable position despite having never won a trophy. So, as I said, I've seen this happen before. Uh, whether it's the manager or one of the other key players signs a contract uh, and the other guys follow. Um, and I, you know, if that's the case at Tottenham, then I, they will have that team who can compete and who can entertain as they go into the new stadium. Um, I'm thinking back to say the ch- very strong Chelsea side. Um, where um, John Terry, Frank Lampard, Ashley Cole signed new contracts in quick succession of each other. Um, again, because they were the spine of the team, they wanted to stay together. Um, and these things, it does happen in football. So, as I said, the, the new, the increased revenue has just given Tottenham a, a little glimpse of what the future holds at their new stadium um, in terms of the, what they can generate. But, crucially, they do have to start winning trophies. And, of course, they're in the FA Cup semi-final. Maybe, maybe not. This is their year to to break that hoodoo and really, you know, unify that group of players. But um, from Tottenham's point of view, I think it's essential that they get those guys on decent um, contracts because compared to their Premier League peers, uh, a lot of whom are not as good uh, um, footballers as as certainly those three that I mentioned um, are earning twice what they're earning right now. So they need to do that and nail it quickly. Do it before the World Cup. Uh, and make sure that, that, as I said, next season is one where the um, most important players in the Tottenham team currently are going to be the most important players in the Tottenham team next season as well. I, th- I think it's, it's still going to be a hard ask for them to get those contracts through. Um, some of the players mentioned there, Jan Vertonghen, I'm sure they'll get, they'll get a new contract to Jan Vertonghen because he won't push hard for a move and, and probably won't ask for too much money. But when what what's for sure is the agents will see the increase in turnover at Tottenham Hotspur and say um, to Daniel Levy, that's one of your arguments gone for, for keeping my, my player's wages down. Um, and we, we both know that my player is valued by other clubs and they're prepared to significantly increase um, salaries, which are way below par for the, for the quality of, of football they're providing. Um, 
and you've now got the money in coming through um, through the club's accounts to pay them uh, wages on par with with some of you know we're not expecting expecting Manchester City wages, but you can get close to far closer to the the top clubs than you have been before. So I I think it will depend on the individual. Um, it depend on you know we've we've discussed many times how Harry Kane is they're fortunate with Harry Kane and that he's not as an individual been pushing for huge salaries which has allowed them to significantly underpay him um, and retain him at the club because of that. Um, Deli Ali has um, had the people around him not just looking for new clubs, but looking for new agents who can open the door to the top clubs. So I don't think there's any question that with Deli Ali, um, he will push to get the maximum um, out of his contract possible and he'll be prepared to, to move if he has to and if he's able to because he's not had the best of seasons so some of the interest in it will have diminished um, Victor Wanyama I think they've got a problem with Victor Wanyama um, in terms of getting him to the, the salary levels they expect they mm-hmm. seem to have given up entirely on Toby Alderweireld which is um, surprising given the quality of his play at centre-back um, but there's been no discussions there, proper discussions over upgrading a contract, which is around £50,000 a week and needs to at least double, if not treble, to get to what he's, he, he's being offered elsewhere. So it's I, they're in a better position because they have the revenue, but they'll, they'll still have to push those contracts over the line and wait and see what happens with Real Madrid and Pochettino. Because if they lose the coach, then I think everything comes back into play. Interestingly as well, <clears throat> in terms of Tottenham historically, we see their revenues every year usually fueled by having sold their best player. Um, mm. Gareth Bale being the last one. And £86 million is almost that £100 million increase in itself, uh, £14 million short. So <clears throat> the fact that they've done this without signing the player, or one of their best players to two of the best players, whatever, is significant in Spurs history. And that's something I think if you're a Tottenham fan, you're heartened by. I think you, you, you know, I've, I've got I've got a lot of friends who are Spurs fans, and they feel like they, no one ever criticizes Daniel Levy, despite the wage structure and, and the fact that they have sold, you know, historically their best, you know, every season. Um, but this time, they will try very hard to get Pochettino on a new contract, as well as those players that we've mentioned. I think Duncan's right. I think the individuals themselves will ultimately make the decision with regard to what their value is uh, within themselves and what they see being offered by other clubs. But I don't get the impression that there's a, a huge, other than Danny Rose and Toby Alderweireld, I don't see there being a sort of en masse feeling of, yeah, we've got to get out of here because we're not getting paid properly. I think maybe, just maybe, and this is certainly bucking the trend at most big clubs in Europe, maybe the team is more important than the money. Maybe playing at Tottenham is enjoyable. They, they see a future. They see trophies. They believe in the team. They believe in the manager. And so they will stay. Maybe. I'm not saying for sure. But as I said, it's, it's unusual. It's bucking the trend, as we saw with Neymar leaving Barcelona for PSG. It's bucking the trend. But, you know, you like, I'd like to think, as a, as a football fan, as someone who, who loves the game, that there is still room for that sense of ambition and that loyalty in the game. Um, And if Tottenham can secure even half of those players on new contracts, plus the manager, then they've got a good chance next season. 
I think Levy has, has already calculated in that he will be selling Alderweireld and yeah. will be selling Danny Rose. I mean, we saw it with Kyle Walker last season. Kyle Walker was asking for more money than Tottenham were prepared to pay, so he was filtered out of the team in the same way that Alderweireld has been filtered out of the team this season. And Rose um, as well, Duncan. Yeah. Um, I mean, with Rose, it's slightly different in that Rose gave that interview in the summer where he, yeah. where he, he essentially cite, well, he, he was injured anyway, but sidelined himself from the team for disciplinary reasons off the back of it. But yeah, both of those players are slated to be sold. So he's expecting, let's say, upwards of 60 million. Maybe, you know, maybe, maybe well, given it's uh, Daniel Levy, he's probably aiming for 100 million for the two of the sales. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, the other thing you have to factor in is if Pochettino, I do not see Pochettino signing a new contract at Tottenham without getting um, an undertaking from Daniel Levy that he will be allowed to sign at least one or two players who are ready-made, um, who he doesn't have to spend a couple of years filtering them into the first team, but are ready-made and direct improvements for the first team because that's has been his complaint in the background for the you know, best part of a year now. So if... To get Pochettino to stay at the club, I think he needs to, to provide transfer money for that on top of um, the money you'll need to uh, to get the new contract signed. So it's still a big a big job for Levy to do this summer. Okay, guys, we're going to move on to the absolutely enormous game on Saturday um, between Manchester City and Manchester United. Well, I say enormous, but actually, let's be honest, the league's over. So it's a big game in terms of, um, I suppose, where the two clubs see themselves and uh, United will want to get much closer. Um, Given that uh, Man City are involved in the quarterfinals of the Champions League with a very tough tie against Liverpool, Duncan. Do you think there's any chance at all that Pep will look to play a weakened team in that game? Well, he's been strongly signalling that that, um, that that's what he plans to do. And from any kind of logical perspective, it makes sense because, as you say, the league is won. It's just a question of when. Um He's got two tough games against Liverpool. He's playing the away leg first. It's unlikely he'll come out of that away leg um, with the tie decided. If the tie's decided, then he can play a strong team for sure against Manchester United. But if the, assuming the tie's not decided, the sensible thing is to rest some of his players. Not just rest, but protect some of his players. So you give, not put them in against Manchester United because it's, it's putting extra miles in their legs at a point in the season where they're already being asked to run more than basically any other team in the Premier League. And he's used, he's hardly rotated the squad at all. But also the risk of injury, because that game is going to be um, a tense affair. Manchester United desperate not to hand the title, see the title given to Manchester City uh, on when they're playing against them. So there's, so there's potential for injury in the game as well. So... Logically, that's as a manager, you would say, well, this game isn't really important to us. Focus on getting through to the Champions League. That's what the, the club want me to do, is win the Champions League. So I've got to get past Liverpool, because if I get knocked out by Liverpool in the Champions League, the whole perspective on this season changes. However, it's funny talking to Manchester City fans about it. Manchester City fans, in the main, are up in the arms at the idea that Pep Guardiola will play a weakened team against Manchester United, and they risk missing the opportunity to win the title against Manchester United and rub it in their faces 
for them, that's the biggest opportunity. And you know, I've talked to some Man City fans and they've said, oh, there's a psychological element. Um, you want to retain the momentum for the, the next tie. Losing to Man United, might, like the players might lose confidence for the Man City tie. I don't really buy that stuff. I think um, if the manager is saying to you, uh, we're going to play a weakened team against Man United with the Champions League in mind, you're not going to lose confidence, off the, especially off the back of a season that they've had where they've, they've steamrolled everyone in the Premier League and, and must have the belief that they are, they're better than anyone in the Premier League. You could make an argument about the psychological impact for next season. One of the reasons Manchester United want to avoid defeat in this game, if possible, beat Man City, is so Jose Mourinho can go into next season and say, look, um, we played them on their ground uh, when they wanted to win the title and we beat them or we stopped them. So next time we play them, we can do the same thing or more. And next season, it's going to be better. So there is that. The, there's that psychological argument of you give the players for Manchester United belief next season when they play Manchester City, and maybe you can say for the Manchester City players, you know, it's a winner for Pep, isn't it? If he plays a weakened team, because if he plays a weakened team and loses, you can say oh, I played a weakened team and I lost. If he plays a weakened team and he still wins, you can say, well, look, I can even rest players and I still beat Manchester United and win the title. So it's, I think it's a sensible strategy from a managerial point of view. I don't think it's going down well with the fans. I think this is um, a matter which is, is, is far from being resolved even in Pep's head just now. I think he said all the right things. Um, I think Duncan's summing up of it is correct. Um, however, um, as someone who um, studied philosophy for seven years, um, I have rarely seen logic applied in football. <laughs> so, well, so even though logic uh, says you should play a weekend team against Manchester United, um, logic doesn't come in to the, the minds of football players, that's for sure. Um, and every, I guarantee you, every single one of the regular first starting 11 will want to play against Liverpool, both legs, and Manchester United on Saturday evening because they have worked their socks off to get to the point of winning the league on their home ground against their city rivals. And they want to be on the pitch. They want to be in influencing. They want to be making history. Every one of those players wants to play. And <clears throat> being told by their manager, even if it's Pep Guardiola, that, no, I'm resting you <clears throat> for a game that we've got next Tuesday, <clears throat> they'll say, no, no, sorry. That's not, that's not for me. Now, I came to this football club to win titles. I came to this football club to play in games like this. I want to be out there playing. And I, and I demand that I play. And I, this is the situation that <clears throat> Guardiola's going to have. The second inflicting factor, which we can't obviously predict as yet, is <clears throat> excuse me, the score in the first leg of the Champions League quarterfinal. Because let's face it, uh, both Liverpool and Manchester City um, achieved brilliant uh, first leg um, results in their round of 16 games and therefore were able to rest players and basically you know, be either draw or be defeated in the second leg in order to still reach the quarterfinals. So should City at Anfield, take two, three goals away? Does he does he need to rest players? Because then Manchester United becomes more important, arguably, because they should be able to take Liverpool out of the equation in the quarterfinals, um, having such a good cushion. And, of course, you say the opposite. What if Liverpool win? 
Is it even more important that he does rest players? Or is it more important that the players bounce back psychologically, win the title against Manchester United, and then go into the game against Liverpool second leg and, and get the job, job done? So I don't think any decisions will be made about team selection for Saturday evening until uh, the quarter-final first leg is out of the way and Pep knows what he's dealing with, both in terms of his players' mentality and the results. I think, I think that's a very good point, Ian, it's, and, and possibly that's factoring into Guardiola's thinking. You've got, I mean, you've seen people like Vincent Company talking about the importance of the game, and he probably understands Manchester City fans better than any player at that club. And yeah, he'll want to be on the field and they want to win on that day. Um, I, and yes, I, I, I see your argument about you, you want the reward of being able to beat Manchester United on, on the pitch and rub it in their faces. And, and that's Guardiola is probably aware of that and, and concerned about it that, that some of the some of his key players want to win that game too much and might do might overexert themselves in the game or put themselves at risk for the second leg because of that desire to play and because of that desire to to win it. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting dynamic, isn't it? And I mean, we should talk about the Manchester City, um, the, the Liverpool Manchester City game as well, and and how 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 you see that panning out, Ian. Well, I reckon this is Liverpool's season encapsulated, really, um, in, in two games. Uh, obviously, if they go through, then they've beaten the champions of England and they're in a semi-final uh, of the Champions League, which you know that club has yearned for um, since the glory days um, of, of the great Rafa Benitez. So, um, and, and again, you know, Klopp has experience um, in Champions League games with Borussia Dortmund as well. It would be, I think, of both clubs, it means more to Liverpool um, for the reason that they have been successful and they haven't won trophies and not won a major trophy since they won the Champions League um, in 2004. So, uh, 2005, sorry. And um, that might be, for me, the deciding factor because for City, it's been a long season, as Duncan has very well documented with Pep Guardiola's style of management. He trains hard for the first eight, six, seven months of the season and sometimes his players are left with very little in the tank come the uh, the sharp end of the Champions League, which is where he failed at Bayern Munich. Um, and having won the league already, and if they win it against Manchester United on Saturday, what's the emotional cost of that? Because there's so much riding on it because of that the historical element. It would be the first time they'd ever done that. Uh, to beat United to win the win the, the top uh, league in, in England, um, we saw Arsenal do it um, at the home of Tottenham Hotspur, an invincible season, and you know that was. If you talk to Arsenal players, the the sheer thrill and joy of that is something that possibly they never experienced again in their careers. So, in terms of that, that, you know, where does Liverpool Manchester City go? Well, if Liverpool are unleashed against City and do score two goals, maybe even more, with that amazing sort of front three, then I think Liverpool obviously don't just have the upper hand in the Champions League, but I think Pep's got a big problem with the, with regards to what we've just been discussing um, prior, which is his team selection for Saturday. Yeah, I, I, I'm intrigued to see how Guardiola approaches the Liverpool game, because there's no question that Manchester City are the better players man for man, and the better football team across the course of the season, but there's a huge expectation amongst Liverpool about this game and based on 
on the league result they had at Anfield that they, they can get the better of Manchester City and, and City have a, an appalling record at Anfield um, which, which is a factor when you, you, you know, you basically never won on the ground um, the players involved it, 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 that is a mental factor that's relevant What's interesting to me is you, you, you see Liverpool players talking about it, you see Jurgen Klopp talking about it, and they like the idea they're playing a side that will come to them. Um, they, they think they can go toe-to-toe with any team that plays attacking football and beat them. So you'd have to think, if Guardiola was prepared to deviate slightly from his philosophy and, and, and not try and control the game and not try and high-press Liverpool, he probably would win that match just because he's got good enough defenders and a good enough midfield. If he played a little bit more conservatively, sit back, not don't give Liverpool the space to play into and score goals on the break, which they're eminently suited to doing, then it's probably quite an easy tie for them. However, I don't, I don't think he has that in him. He's so dedicated to his style of football, which he believes he should play in all conditions. I think he will give Liverpool the opportunity by playing the normal way and, and seeing who who fights it out between the two of them. The other thing that's interesting to me about this tie is seeing the amount of interviews that Jurgen Klopp has done ahead of it, um, including a very good one with our, our friend uh, Graham Hunter, uh, which I was listening to on the way down to Manchester yesterday. It's always, I think it's always telling when a, when a, when a top manager decides to give interviews and several interviews. Um, it's because he thinks he's at a, a key point, a good, on a high and this is obviously a high for Liverpool. Um, and maybe he's also thinking this is my last opportunity this season to be on high and give the interviews. Um, they, you know, there's no guarantee I get through to the semi-finals and do another set. So that that kind of says to me, is Jurgen Klopp saying this is the this is the top moment and this is the the moment to speak about myself uh, and get it out there? Um, well, well, I'm uh, in in favourable territory. Um, so maybe he's being a little bit more rational about it um, and seeing that this is a difficult tie to get through, even even against a, the kind of team he wants to be playing against. OK, moving on to uh, another manager or former manager now in the uh, Premier League, which is Alan Pardew, who has just left his job at West Brom. It's the second manager this season to leave the Birmingham club, and that's the sixth manager in six years I suppose the first question is, was this a bizarre appointment in the first place, Ian? It was for me. Uh, I mean, Pardew has a reasonable record of keeping clubs up, but um, I just don't see how his... Well, first of all, the timing of it, when he went in November. Um, so he had a t- one transfer window to operate in. Um, but also, yeah, I think there are six or seven points adrift at the bottom of the table then. Obviously, um, that's turned into 10 now. Um, and he's won only one game uh, in the Premier League in the, his time there. Was it bizarre from West Brom's point of view? Sadly not, because the at the lower end of the Premier League, there's a very small gene pool from which clubs choose managers. And they are white, middle-aged men over 40 with 15, 20 years plus experience in the Premier League. When Pardew was appointed, West Brom had already missed the boat with Roy Hodgson going to Crystal Palace, with Big Sam going to Everton, um, even Claude Poole coming back into English football to manage Leicester City. Um, but to sack two managers in one season 
I think it's the people upstairs have got to take responsibility for the bad appointments in the first place. I think Tony Pulis was not a bad appointment, but I still think uh, when I spoke to Pulis, I think it was the fourth game of this season, um, I met him at the Amex, um, having Brighton, having beaten them 3-1. And in the sort of 15 years or so I've known Tony Pulis, he did not seem himself even then. And I, I just sensed there was something wrong that maybe he already felt he made the wrong decision to go to West Brom, that the culture or the climate at the club wasn't right. Um, obviously, uh, new owners uh, don't help. And then, of course, there was the bizarre sacking of the chief, chief executive and the chairman, as if it was their fault Pardew wasn't working. And then, of course, a month later, you get the sacking of the manager and his assistant themselves. Now, I would say that, uh, well, people argue, don't they? Well, Chelsea's hiring and firing works, you know, 14 managers in 13 seasons of Abramovich has brought them every trophy that you can win in world football other than the uh, Club World Cup. West Brom's not Chelsea, that this hiring and fire strategy is not going to work at West Brom. And what I completely don't understand um, about clubs like West Brom who have had a long period of Premier League um, security, um, uh, it, the revenue from the, the TV money as well to spend why no one at that club could be a little bit more imaginative, a bit more creative, think outside the box and look for a younger, better coach than Alan Pardew um, or Tony Pulis to come into the club and do something like the likes of David Wagner's done at Huddersfield, where he shaped the club the way that he sees his football philosophy and his coaching skills, uh, the strengths there, uh, in order to um, give that club a better chance of progress in the future. Uh, even if Wagner left now, I'm sure Huddersfield would find a manager who would continue Wagner's work if he get his offer a job elsewhere. And isn't it interesting as well? I think that of all the clubs, um, let's say outside of the top six, or certainly in the bottom half of the table, the only three who have now not changed manager are the three promoted clubs, Newcastle, Brighton and Huddersfield. And both all of those clubs look relatively safe. I'm not saying you know, one of them won't be in danger. Um, at the moment, Huddersfield would be that club but relatively safe because they've stuck with what got them there in the first place, the manager's philosophy of football, et cetera. Um, and, of course, you've got a very diverse range of coaches at those three clubs. You've got Rafa Benitez at Newcastle, Chris Hutton at, at Brighton and Wagner at Huddersfield, whereas every other club seems to have employed one of Sam, Pardew, Hodgson, et cetera, et cetera, uh, on that merry-go-round. So I think there's lessons to be learned However, I'm not optimistic they will be. I think if you look at the, the last decade with West Brom, and the, you know, they've been a, a fairly stable Premier League club for most of that decade with a, with a good recruitment policy living within their means. Um, they've had four good appointments in there. They Roberto Di Matteo, who they fired. Steve Clark, who they fired um, really stupidly. Um, Roy Hodgson, who they lost um, to England. And then Tony Poulos, who, you know, was a consistent manager for them until the ownership changed. I think we should definitely say when we were discussing the, the change of manager at West Brom earlier in the series of the transfer window, you, Ian, were very clear about this, what you, I can't remember the exact phrase you used, but something along the lines of idiotic or stupid appointment of Alan Pardew and, and a talking about how he was a man past his best and, and it was a big mistake on their, on their part and that's exactly how it panned out. 
Um, and you you have to worry about West Brom because they are under new ownership. As you said, they sacked the chairman, they sacked the chief executive, they sacked the manager. So that's the entire tier of uh, foot, real football club management gone um, with all the experience and knowledge uh, entwined in that. And they're going down a division and they're going to have to start from scratch. And you're going to, you wonder if Alan Pardew was the last important appointment are they going to make another big mistake of an appointment not only for manager but for chairman and, and, and chief executive in the lower division and get stuck down there without getting all brexit guys um this is another british manager that has failed miserably i mean how are we viewed in the continent in terms of our football coaching uh, i was reading an article by one of the local um journalists and he was talking about that the trip to Barcelona and there would only been th- uh, three hours of coaching in that and the night before the the infamous incident with the, f- the, the four or five players um, Pardew himself had lost his jacket, his glasses and his, his wallet on a night out um, does this kind of further this notion that, that we're an unsophisticated footballing culture? Well, I, I, moved, I started covering English football in 2003 when I moved, when I moved um, to England, the, the, the big names at the time, the guys who were being um, thought of as the up-and-coming figures in English management were Alan Pardew, uh, no, sorry, Alan Kerbishley and Sam Allardyce. And I was intrigued to, to meet them because one of the things that I find being a football journalist is when you get in a press conference with a manager, you can pretty much tell his ultimate quality as a leader from that press conference. And it, it's the, the, the defining factor is the top managers more or less always dictate what happens in a press conference. They expect the questions coming and they have a message they want to put across and they use the press conference to put that message across. And, you know, go in the room with Sir Alex Ferguson or Jose Mourinho or Pep Guardiola in a different way. They're <coughs> incredible. You don't catch them out. Went in the room with Alan, Alan Kerbishley and... Um, and Sam Allardyce, and it's a de- it's a def- defensive. Um, yes, Sam Allardyce is a very confident man, but he doesn't come across as on the same tier as these individuals who are true leaders. And you know, Arsene Wenger would be another example of, of the of the, the managers you're dealing with. Then, and I have to say, in the entire time I've worked in English football, I've yet to come across an English manager who has that. Um, that aura of being a leader, of being a really top coach and manager of individuals who can lead not just a mid-table Premier League team, but a top club. Uh, um, you know, Roy Hodgson has probably been the most effective of those <coughs> managers, but he's done it at clubs like Fulham or West Brom, where um, playing and coaching the players in a certain very repetitive way for percentage results works and is acceptable. But if you try and do that um, at Manchester United or Manchester City, you've got no chance. (laughs) So, as I say, I've yet to come across the manager who's who's struck me as being English manager, struck me as being able to reach that level, um, which would suggest there is an intrinsic problem with either the selection of coaches or the training of coaches um, or just being an English coach in an English football environment where you're built up 
as being better than you are and being and, and you're talked of as being a candidate for England manager on the basis of not particularly great achievements on the pitch and certainly very little silverware. I agree with you, Duncan, on what you said about I've not come across an English manager either um, who has the aura of, um, let's just say, uh, greatness. I think. What about be, Teddy Venables, yeah. guys? He's the one name that no, jumps out. No, he didn't. Because he obviously, European semi-final, uh, European Cup final with Barcelona. Yeah, Terry. Terry was very charismatic. It's very charismatic. Uh, I've been in Terry's company, interviewed him countless times. Um, he talks really well, but um, I think um, I think he belonged in a, in a different era. And Duncan was talking about you know since two thousand and two, two thousand and three, and yeah, Venables yeah. obviously hit, you know his 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 you know his, his greatest achievement was that uh, European Championship semi final in in uh, ninety six. Uh, at home uh, in England, um, I'll say I'll just give one example. I know he's not the best example because of his rant about Manchester United. But when I um, first came to be chief football writer on the Daily Mail in in two thousand, I was um, dispatched to a friend between Spain and Germany um, in Germany because Keegan, Keegan, who was England manager then, um, was uh, going to uh, assess Germany ahead of uh, what would be a very interesting last game at Wembley uh, in a uh, European uh, sorry yeah European Championship qualifier um, sorry World Cup qualifier for two thousand two and um, he first of all refused to speak to me because uh, he said he didn't like my paper um, uh, even though I'd only met him once uh, at that game and then when I did see him later on in the hotel and he said that there would be no on the record interview uh we had a cup of coffee and it was all congenial enough but i very much had the impression of a man who really didn't know enough about football to be in the job that he was in he just struck me as someone who even having watched the game he'd watched earlier that day um didn't understand the way that germany played as we discussed it and certainly didn't understand the way spain were trying to play uh and so he was very much that kind of, I don't know, um, almost like a dinosaur, you know, the kind of guys who say it's not, it's not about them, it's about us. And you know, if our quality players perform, then we'd have to worry about them. Um, and then, of course, he after losing to Germany in that game at Wembley before it was torn down to Dietmar Hamann's uh, free kick, uh, he then resigned in the toilets, came out, and his press conference was effectively said, I saw things going on out there on the pitch, and I just couldn't make them right I couldn't solve those problems so I realised I'm out of my depth at, at this level and I'm thinking I could have told you that now <laughs> he was he was the, the most important football coach in England at that time and he admitted to himself and to the nation that he didn't wasn't able to perform at that level and I think that's been a problem for England English coaches ever since too many of them, almost all of them, are not able to perform at the highest level. And so complaining, the likes of Aladis about, oh, well, you recognise Real Madrid or recognise you know, AC Milan. Well, nonsense, Sam, you can't. And that's why you never have. And it's the same for guys like Pardew, Kirby who's completely disappeared off the face of the earth. And even guys uh, more recently, you know, um, like Eddie Howe at Bournemouth. Oh, he could be the next England manager, next Arsenal manager. Seriously? Are you having a laugh? This guy's got no idea how to manage at the top level. And from 
stories I've heard from his players, or former players and stuff like that, he's not a very good coach either. So I think England does have a problem in its coaching culture and it's not being uh, improved uh, quickly. Uh, and it's never going to be improved as long as, as I said, the gene pool from which you choose your English, English, English manager from to manage the Premier League consists of about 10 people. Okay, well, that's, uh, that was certainly interesting, guys. Um, going to move on now to our um, quickfire rounds, and we'll try and keep it as quickfire as possible, given that we're running a little bit over in terms of time. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the signings of the season, and I'm going to throw a name in your direction, and you can tell me if you think they are, have potential to be one of the signings of the season. So I'm going to start with you, Duncan. Probably the easiest one of the lot, Mo Salah. Yeah, you almost don't have to ask that. I think it almost certainly will be the signing of the season. Um, I don't think he's player of the year. I think there's a strong bandwagon for him to be player of the year. I think that has to go to Kevin De Bruyne um, unless uh, Liverpool managed to win the Champions League, um, which I don't see happening. By which, by which time the player of the year will have been named, Duncan? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> But we can have our own, you know, we can have our own decision and player of the season at the, at the end of the season, um, rather than the, the way it's voted for by the, the journalists and, and in particular the players, which is well in advance. Current Anfield rap status, dirt. Um, on to you, Ian. Davison Sanchez. I think he's been, I think he's performed effectively, very well. Um, interestingly, uh, Liam Rossini and his guardian column last Friday named him in his team of the year. And in fact, uh, it was the team of the year he voted for in his PFA form, which they as Duncan mentioned, they had to have in by last Friday. So Good Friday was the uh, end of the, um, the the deadline, I should say, for um, all the professional players in the Premier League to vote for Player of the Year, Team of the Year um, and Young Player of the Year. And that's how early they do it, so it wasn't even April yet. Um, but I think Sanchez, yeah, been very good. Uh, still, got, still got a bit to go in terms of his football um, education, but could be... Uh, and probably is uh, what Tottenham are banking on as they prepare to sell Alderweireld. He's got a lot of raw, he's got a lot of raw edges, Sanchez, hasn't he? And, and he was very very expensive given as a signing for Ajax Amsterdam. But it's interesting that that, um, that Liam has, has picked him out for his team of the season. I, would, I personally I wouldn't have him there because I, I, I like his athleticism and his speed. But I, I, every game I watch, or almost every game I watch him play, I see him make a quite fundamental defensive error in terms of positioning or or a, or a missed tackle or a clearance um, so but you can see why a club like Tottenham would go for him because he, he has the potential to develop into a top top centre back Duncan one that's quite close to my heart being a Scotsman is Andy Robertson well that there's an argument for that as a, one of the the best value signings of the season for sure Although you'd have to say um, they've only got half a season of play out of them. Um, and the, the, actually, Graham Hunter's interview with um, Jurgen Klopp, he, Klopp was very interesting in Andy Robertson. He said that uh, Robertson kind of lost confidence in the or his, his, re, his reason for why Robertson didn't play much at the start of the season was he said Robertson lost confidence in what he was good at, which was attacking and crossing the ball. Um, because he was defending so poorly against the Liverpool t- attack in, in training. Um, but he's come out of that really well, and he's now defending solidly and showing that attacking ability for Liverpool. So, yeah, one of the best value signings of the season, for sure. 
Is there a case to say he's now the best left back in the Premier League at the moment? I don't think so, no. Do you? Level yet. Although, you know, there, is, there aren't many good left backs around. Well, that's why I asked. I, just... but I, I would say <laughs> you know, Marcus Benjamin Mendy for sure is is mm. you know is, is a better fullback. Although he's he's obviously not played for most of the season. But he's, if you ask me which one, I, which one, which one I'd like if I could have both for either one for free, I'd, I'd have to choose Mendy over Robertson. Okay, Richarlison. Yeah, I think um, again value for money. You don't get a Brazilian for twelve and a half million pounds very often, especially one that has a talent. I think for Watford. Um, I don't think any of their fans would argue with him being signing of their season. Um, on the grander scale, he's gone off the boil recently. Uh, I think the change of manager hasn't really suited him, but uh, like, you can be sure that there'll be other clubs looking at Richarlison to, to buy him in the, in the next window. Nemanja Matic. A good signing. Expensive. Um, in terms of the fee it took to get him out of of Chelsea and expensive in terms of the salary they were paying, but he's done the job um, that Mourinho expected from him and asked from him. And uh, and it's been notable that in recent weeks when Mourinho's talking about the guys he absolutely depends on and, and feels are leaders in the team, two of the names he always mentions are Matic and Lukaku, the two signings from the summer that have been in the team almost every game, and delivered almost every game. Alvaro Marata? No. He's, he's been too inconsistent. Um, club record signing for Chelsea, £60 million. Um, <clears throat> I just think that he's not repaid the old cliche of repaying that big transfer fee. I don't think he has. Um, he's not um, Diego Costa in terms of physical play, etc., but Said in he scored some great goals, but not not enough, just not enough to be a signing of the season. Victor Lindelof, definitely not um, signing of the season. Um, definitely has um, a considerable amount to prove, um, and you know United are going to look for more defenders, a lot more defenders in the summer, and Lindelof is going to have a fight um, to to get a starting place in the team again. I think I saw some statistics the other day that actually their um, their defensive record's been quite good across the board in the, in the matches he's played. But the key thing there is he hasn't earned the trust of Mourinho to be a starting centre-back. Um, and they're kind of paying the cost of going for a cheaper option in the market um, when they needed a top centre-back in the summer. Um, and they're going to have to go for a top centre back again this summer, and they'll probably end up spending considerably more. You know, one of the players we, we talked about in the transfer window a couple of weeks ago, they, they made it clear to Samuel and Titi that they will pay him the high salary he wants if he's prepared to leave Barcelona, and that deal will cost them 60 million euros, which is basically double what Lindelof cost them, and a salary of um, 9 million euros, which is markedly higher than what Lindelof's going. So. I'm afraid with centre-backs, they're in such short supply and they have to play in a particular way these days of being physical and good on the ball. It's pretty hard to get a, a bargain deal anymore in that position. Danny Drinkwater? 
not <clears throat> not by any stretch of the imagination, a signing of the season. Um, a weird scratching head moment when they sold Matic to Manchester United and signed drink water with some lame, uh, weak excuse that, oh, he played really well with N'Golo Conte because they both did well at Leicester when they won the title. Um, listen, you ask Antonio Conte about Danny Drinkwater and you'll get the same reply. Duncan, last one for you, Lukaku. Yeah, I think the same, basically the same category as as Matic. Um, very expensive. Um, has done what's expected of him in terms of scoring goals. I he's actually surprised me. Um, I you know I wasn't a big fan of Lukaku. I thought he got caught offside too often. He didn't involve other players in the play. He was quite a selfish striker. Um, I saw why he was chosen because there wasn't a player with the physical attributes Mourinho wanted elsewhere that was available to him in the, in the market, but I felt he had a lot of work to do with him. And I, I think it's it's noticeable how Lukaku's responded to that in terms of the effort he's put in, the way he's played. He's very much a team player now. And it's noticeable the way he's developed tactically um, and in his ability to create play and get in the right positions to allow the team to attack around him and isn't bothered if he doesn't actually score a goal in the game. So, you know, in this era where we're we're told that um, Pep Guardiola improves every player he's got and Mourinho hasn't improved any of the players he's got, I think it's a very clear example of Romelu Lukaku of a player he has improved very, very markedly in his tactical um, ability on the field um, in just one season um, working with him. Okay, and we're going to round this out with one last player, a guy that I think has uh, certainly worked away quietly in the background and done very well, Ederson. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, Manchester have had their, their problems with goalkeepers and um, I think the ball he played to Leroy Sané, uh, which allowed uh, to set up the second goal um, last weekend, was simply sensational. Um, he picked out Sané from 60 yards. Uh, Duncan knows very well and has said before that this is one of the things that um, he was bought for um, because Guardiola liked the fact he, he would release the ball quickly um, and he could find players with that direct pass. And it was a kind of pass that you know any glorious central midfielder would, would, would have been very proud of. So, uh, And he's also shown himself to be brave um, and Manchester, it improved Manchester's defence. I'd like to just add very quickly one other player into this because I think it's significant. Pascal Gross at Brighton has the third best goals and assists for any attacking midfielder in, in the division. If Brighton stay up, uh, and it looks like they should, then the £1.8 million they paid for him will make the £180 million of revenue money next year, never mind what they received this year, look like a very big multiplication sign on one particular player. Okay, guys, I'm going to have to draw this transfer window to a close. It's been great having you both on. Um, We'll be back next week at the usual time, Tuesday before 3pm. And uh, you can obviously get the podcast on the usual channels. You can subscribe to iTunes, Audioboom, or any other place that you normally get your podcasts. If you wish to continue the debate, you can on Twitter. I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane, and the guys, more importantly, are at at Duncan Castles and at GarboSJ. If you've got any comments, queries, or questions, we'll be glad to answer them on there. So, until next time, thanks for listening.